KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, it's not too late to act to slow climate change. That's what Rebecca Solnit and Thelma young Latunatabwa say. Their new project, Not Too Late, invites newcomers to join the climate movement and guides people from despair to possibilities. Also later in the show, Ivana Trump, the mother of Ivanka Don Jr. and little Eric, died last week. Amy Willens will comment on her memoir, Raising Trump. And we'll also have your Minnesota moment today, local action on climate change in the farming town of Morris, Minnesota. But first, let's start with the worst news of the week, the worst news of the Biden presidency, abandoning action on climate change. Joe Manchin killed it. Party leaders had been negotiating with Manchin for 18 months, steadily cutting back on what they could hope to achieve in an effort to win his support. He still didn't agree. And he did this after that Supreme Court decision that curbed the federal government's authority to reduce emissions from power plants. This was our best chance for the next several years. And Joe Manchin killed it because he said he was concerned about inflation. Is that a convincing argument? Uh, I think the short answer is no. And the reason the short answer is no is because most of the provisions of the bill he killed were anti-inflationary. So taking them one by one, the, the bill had a funding mechanism in it, which was taxing uh, the rich. During the bout of inflation, uh, spending has gone down uh, for most people, but not the rich. They're still bidding up prices, bidding up the cost of housing, which is a major source of inflation. So taxing the rich both puts a limit on that, and it actually bolsters the government's account, which according to conventional economics, is a way to uh, avoid and bring down inflation. So that's, uh, that's the first part. Part two is that part of the bill that Manchin killed had at his insistence, the provision that the revenue coming in from taxing the rich half of it would go to reducing the debt, paying down the debt, which is another conventional wisdom, perhaps even folk wisdom way of reducing inflation. So by his own light, since Joe Manchin is an apostle of uh, the folk wisdom that informs or misinforms most of our economics, uh, this was anti-inflationary. Then the third part, was in cutting out anything resembling uh, legislation that would affect uh, energy sources. Uh, and again, at Manchin's insistence, uh, it made it possible for there to be new enterprises in fossil fuels, which again, according to the kind of conventional wisdom to which Joe Manchin subscribes, potentially brings down uh, the price at the pump. Then the other part uh, was, of course, to invest more uh, in moving towards clean energy, sustainable energy sources. And, you know, if you look at the havoc that climate change, cl the climate crisis is wreaking today, much less tomorrow, that's a cost saver too. So to say that he was killing the bill because of his concern over inflation was, you know, generously putting it hogwash. Of course, 
Joe Manchin has veto power over climate action only because not a single Republican offered to vote for a Democratic climate bill. In the past, I've read that some Republican senators, including Susan Collins and Mitt Romney, have acknowledged the need for government action to slow climate change, but they didn't do it now. No, they certainly didn't do it now. I, I, I guess uh, they're just not, uh, you know, lack the amount of gumption uh, we rarely see uh, on the Republican side for bucking what passes for conventional wisdom on the Republican side. Uh, you know, I mean, you see it in the January 6th hearings with Liz Cheney, but to say that that's the exception and not the rule is a huge understatement. Well, there is one thing that Joe Biden could do on climate right now, today. He could declare a climate emergency. He could then take executive action that doesn't require congressional approval. He could halt crude oil exports. He could limit oil and gas drilling in federal waters. He could uh, direct agencies to boost renewable energy sources. I know that Jeff Merkley and Sheldon Whitehouse Two Democratic senators have urged Biden to declare a climate emergency and invoke the Defense Production Act, which would he could then increase production of renewable energy products like solar panels. Is Biden going to declare a climate emergency, do you think? Yet again, John, the short answer is not yet. <laughs> uh, he was expected to do so for a while uh, on Wednesday. Uh, and did not. Uh, he, he sort of gave the sense that he was approaching it based on future developments. Uh, there's almost a kind of Zeno's paradox uh, approach here to, uh, uh, to major initiatives that, you know, you cut the distance between you and the major initiative and having cut it, then you cut it some more, then you cut it some more. But, you know, you may never actually get there. Uh, and I have this there. kind of foreboding that the Zeno paradox model may, may uh, in fact be in play here. Well, I wanna switch topics to Donald Trump and the Republicans, because there's a fascinating new CBS YouGov poll that asked Republicans whether they approved of Vice President Mike Pence's actions on January 6th, when he refused to go along with Trump's fake elector scheme. And he declared Biden, you may recall, the winner of the Electoral College. The answer, the, you do recall, the answer is that 66% of Republicans said they approved of what Pence did on January 6th. And just 34% of Republicans agreed with Trump that Pence should have sent it back to the states, blocked the Electoral College from coming to a conclusion and throwing the country into political chaos. Uh, so that's one third of the Republican Party is the Trump base right now. And that isn't very many. No, and I think that reflects a, a larger discontent or frustration with Trump, not just about this, but but in general, and that if anyone has ever turned himself into yesterday's man, uh, it is Donald Trump by his obsession about the 2020 election and uh, undoing it even now. Just this week, the Speaker of the uh, Wisconsin Assembly got a phone call from Trump saying, what are you doing to change Wisconsin's vote? in 2020. And the speaker said, well, not much. 
this backward focus of Trump, I think uh, a number of Republicans find frustrating because they actually have the state of the economy to run on, and that doesn't seem to be even on Trump's radar screen. So uh, I don't think he's doing himself any favors. And yet he seems to be perhaps on the verge of declaring himself a candidate uh, for 2024, um, even though the most amazing poll finding in the New York Times Siena poll, uh, that, that was the poll that said Biden's approval rating has reached an all time uh, right, low like of 33, 33%. Yeah. 33%. But that same poll showed that in a rematch between Biden and Trump in 2024, Biden would win 44 to 41. That is pretty amazing. And I think the Republicans have noticed this. Yes, the Republicans have noticed this. And if Trump is planning on declaring his candidacy soon, it's because I think he's fearful of not prevailing. And by getting out there first, he hopes that would intimidate some possible uh, challengers in the Republican ranks from entering the race. So I think the the, the reported fact of uh, his soon-to-be early entry really is a reflection of that, of his, uh, of his fear. And of course, the reason the Republicans are really hoping he doesn't do this is that with Biden's approval ratings at this all-time low, they are hoping to make Biden the center of their campaigns in the midterms and again in 2024 and to run on uh, inflation. But of course, as soon as Donald Trump declares he's running again, the conversation is no longer about Joe Biden. The conversation becomes one about uh, Trump. And that's very much to the advantage of, of Democrats. And uh, Republicans are hoping and praying that Trump will not declare at least until after the midterms. But a lot of pundits think he's likely to declare before the midterms, uh, let us count the other reasons why he might do that. Well, uh, you know, I, again, I think it's mainly uh, his apprehension uh, about other Republican entrants, although a Republican uh, pundit uh, wrote today in one of the papers that if enough Republicans actually enter the presidential primaries in 2024, that might benefit Trump because, you know, you could win 28% of the vote and still come out first. I yeah. did look this up. In 2016, Trump ended up with a total of about one third of the votes in Republican primaries because there were eight other candidates. Right. Clearly, among other things, Ron DeSantis would hope that his entry might forestall that of, uh, of other Republican wannabes because I, I suspect he believes that if it's a one-on-one -on -one between uh, him and Trump, he can win. Uh, it's not going to be a one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, others will enter. So, you know, this is the, the, there are different uh, strategies at play for uh, different potential candidates here. And I think another reason that Trump would like to declare before the midterms is that then he can claim credit after the midterms for whatever gains the Republicans uh, have made. No, absolutely. Even though uh, he has endorsed some candidates who are preposterous and the ones that have won primaries are not necessarily likely to win elections. I mean, just as uh, Dan Cox, the guy he endorsed for governor in Maryland in a uh, Republican primary held this week, is 
all but a QAnon guy who stands about as much chance in Maryland as the late Leon Trotsky. Uh, <laughs> you know, so uh, uh, many of his choices are, you know, a real hindrance to the Republicans as you run through uh, Mastriano in, in uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Herschel Walker in Georgia. You know, these are not guys who are uh, necessarily bound for glory. Uh, but you're right that Trump would like to take credit, whether it's due uh, or or the opposite of due, for whatever uh, victories the Republicans win in November. And thank you for today's first mention of Trotsky on today's uh, broadcast. Always, always glad to do it. I can even mention Bakaran if uh, you know there's some reason to. Uh, <laughs> okay, just... let's, let, well, here's hoping. So now it's time for news of the class struggle in Los Angeles, a regular feature of this broadcast. Starbucks workers at two LA stores voted to join a union in the past week. This was at the cafe that's on Olympic and Fairfax. We know that one well. And another one in Long Beach, they voted to join Workers United, which is an affiliate of the SEIU. And as the, after the vote began last Friday, Starbucks announced it was closing six other of its cafes in Los Angeles. They said that was because of what they called security and safety reasons. The, the locations were Hollywood and Vine, you might call that a high traffic area, one inside the Doubletree Hotel downtown, noted hangout for criminals, uh, one in West Hollywood, known as the Big Gay Starbucks, the LA Times reported it was, quote, a popular gathering spot for locals shopping at the nearby Trader Joe's, another well-known gathering place for the criminal element. And they're also closing a Starbucks on 2nd Street, downtown L.A., two blocks from LAPD headquarters. So I wonder what you think is going on with the closure of these Starbucks and whether security and safety really is what they're concerned about. Uh, again, you keep asking me questions to which the answer is no. This is getting it's getting somewhat repetitive. Uh, now, obviously, this is one way to avoid unionization. Uh, you know, I mean, it's interesting if uh, you, if you close a, a factory as a way to avoid unionization, you you often run afoul of the NLRB of the National Labor Relations Board. So far, closing a Starbucks in and of itself has not reached. I don't know if anyone's brought an action about that. Uh, I, I should talk to some worker side uh, labor lawyers whom I know. But uh, it, it seems to me that when there's a pattern in practice of closing Starbucks to avoid unionization, an aggressive NLRB, which we certainly have now for the first time in about 70 years, an aggressive NLRB might uh, choose to uh, consider an, un an unfair labor practice, which I uh, without any hard evidence, I suspect is overwhelmingly is the case. So now there's some almost a hundred Starbucks are voting or have voted on unionization. It all started at that Starbucks in Buffalo. We talked about it here. Right. Actually, the number that have unionized is now over three hundred. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. Well, it, it, the New York Times had a piece. It all started in Buffalo, kind of an expose where they reported that the first Buffalo store was organized by a barista who had been a Rhodes Scholar. And apparently this makes him not a real worker and something is phony about this. What do you say well, to that? Well, it's a she, not a he. A she. Uh, yes, Jazz Brisbart, who will actually uh, be on a uh, Zoom event with me in a couple of weeks. 
And she, to a certain degree, uh, she, she has a union background. She was, uh, I, I, I think she uh, tried to help out the uh, United Auto Workers in some of their efforts to unionize auto plants in the South. And at that point came into contact with the organizing guru, Richard Bensinger, uh, who among other things, uh, he's now sort of officially retired, but he has been among other things, the organizing director for the AFL-CIO in the early years of uh, John Sweeney's presidency. Uh, and Bensinger is now sort of a consigliere for Workers United. And what we're seeing though, of which jazz is just the tip of the spear, is that a lot of the unionization going on right now among the young is going on in particular among the college educated and the college bound. They, they're sort of a, a wised up group that understands the logic and the need for unions and probably thinks they have maybe a little more job security. If I lose this, I can get something else than workers uh, in, in a more financially uh, vulnerable uh, position. My favorite labor victory of the past week has been the minor league baseball players who agreed to a settlement with Major League Baseball for $185 million to pay them for the eight years they have been in court without reaching trial, seeking to, to uh, compel Major League Baseball to follow to pay them the minimum wage during spring training in Arizona and Florida and to pay them overtime during spring training. The issue before the court was whether players perform work during spring training and Major League Baseball argued that players do not deserve to be paid during spring training because they are not working. Uh, they are learning. They are learning how to play better. Uh, MLB's lawyers argued, quote, it's the players that obtain the benefit from spring training, while the clubs incur the cost of having to provide that training. During the training season, therefore, the players are not employees and are not subject to any state minimum wage laws. This case was gonna to go to trial in San Francisco on June 1st, when the MLB finally decided to settle. What do you think would have happened in a trial in San Francisco over whether minor league baseball players engage in work at spring training? I think given the politics of San Francisco and given the lingering memory of Willie Mays, I think the players <laughs> would have prevailed as well they should. I mean, and the arguments you cite are pretty much arguments universities used to make about why we don't pay our research assistants and why interns aren't paid and, and so on. But as everyone knows, teaching assistants and research assistants and players in spring training do a hell of a lot of work. And there's another fascinating union drive just beginning in the halls of Congress. Staffers at several House member offices are seeking union recognition, something called the Congressional Staff Union. It's the first time congressional staffers have set out to organize. They claim that they, their working conditions are dangerous, that they lack clear promotion policies, they need better sick leave, they want to eliminate the threat of retaliation. Uh, can you think of any unsafe working conditions for congressional staffers in our recent I, history? I think things got fairly hairy, to use a technical term, uh, a year ago, January. That, that seemed to me to be kind of uh, 
kind of risky. And, you know, even if you're in a district office and, uh, you know, your member supports abortion rights and some people might be out there, uh, you know, wanting to attack the office. So, yeah, this is some, some uh, a cause promoted by uh, Congress member Andy Levin of, uh, of Michigan, who's in a contested primary shortly. And uh, it's of a piece with uh, young people like the staff members on Capitol Hill unionizing of late in think tanks and uh, democratic political organizations and what have you. The, they're starting with the congressional progressives, Ted Lieu of LA, Ro Khanna of Silicon Valley, Cori Bush, AOC, Ilhan Omar. Uh, are they gonna be able to organize most Democrats or most congressional offices, do you think? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't give you an empirically based answer, but I would think they could organize certainly many of them. I would be stunned if they couldn't organize a hundred of them. And once that's the case, it seemed to me difficult for the other hundred some Democrats to say no. So I, I think eventually they'll get the Democrats on board. If they Nancy get any Republicans on board, I will be completely astonished. Yes. Well, Nancy Pelosi recently announced that they're raising the minimum wage of congressional staff aides. Now they're going to get at least $45,000 a year. I looked up what are wages in Washington, D.C. now. The bottom quarter of wage earners in Washington, D.C. earn $53,000. So this would still leave congressional staffers at near poverty wages. Well, Washington has a long tradition of saying they're doing young people a favor uh, when they come to work here. Although Lord knows some of them end up being entrusted with all kinds of responsibilities. Take Cassidy Hutchinson, for an <laughs> yeah. example. So, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, underpaying is a, is a storied tradition in the nation's capital where, let us remember, a long time ago, slavery was legal. <laughs> Good point. Now, all this is happening under a resolution passed under Nancy Pelosi and Democratic right. control of the House. Um, what happens to the Union of Congressional Staff Workers if the Republicans take control of the House in the November elections? Well, that raises an interesting question. I mean, the resolution has been passed. I suppose it can be rescinded. Nonetheless, uh, the issue having been raised and passed by the Democrats, I don't think it would prohibit Democratic members of Congress from recognizing a union of, of their workers in their own offices. So even that wouldn't be, I think, a dead end. But, uh, you know, I think we can count on the Republicans to try to, res to rescind that resolution if, if they do take the House in November. One last thing before we let you go. My pet peeve this week, the Secret Service said its agents destroyed their text messages from January 5th and January 6th. Secret Service is part of the Department of Homeland Security. The Department of Homeland Security is he now headed by a Biden appointee, Alejandro Mayorkas. The Inspector General of the Secret Service said he tried to get the text messages, but was told they had been deleted, and he's been meeting with the January 6th committee behind closed doors. So this seems to be a battle between the current Democratic leadership of the Homeland Security and the Secret Service agents. What do you think might be in those text messages that we are told have been deleted? Well, we, we know from Cassidy Hutchinson's, the above-mentioned Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, 
that the Secret Service got into almost a violent altercation with the president when he wanted to go up to the Capitol on January 6th, and they said, no way. That seems to me that that would have been uh, a subject that would have come up on Secret Service communications and much else, you know, regarding things that Donald Trump wanted to do. So how about how about a Secret Service message saying the president wants us to take Mike Pence to Alaska this afternoon? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, cops is cops. And that's one of the problems we uh, we have to deal with. The tendency to back the authoritarian right whenever possible is ever present among most, if not all, police forces in this country anyway. Cops is cops, says Harold Meyerson. You can read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Always good to be here, John. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. The liquor store in the farming town of Morris, Minnesota, pools its beer with solar power. Morris has solar panels on its community center, library, city hall, and liquor store. It's installed an electric vehicle charging station at the grocery store, and it's working on a composting program. The university branch there has solar panels on poles high enough for the cows to graze underneath. It also has two wind turbines and uses wind energy to create fertilizer for crops that grow underneath the turbines instead of the traditional process for making fertilizer, which is normally derived from petroleum. Morris is a city of about 5,000, uh, not far from the South Dakota border in southeast, southwestern Minnesota. The University of Minnesota campus there, of course, leans left politically, while the surrounding farming communities lean to the right. But both communities support and have helped shape something is now being called the Morris Model which calls for reducing energy consumption 30% by 2030 and producing 80% of the county's electricity locally by 2030, thus guaranteeing it comes from renewable sources. The Morse model also includes eliminating landfill waste by 2025. Morris provides an example of how across the country communities are accelerating their efforts to fight climate change as action stalls on the national level, especially after Joe Manchin killed climate legislation and after the Supreme Court curtailed the EPA's authority to limit greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. Morris, Minnesota, live like them. This has been your Minnesota Moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul and a special feature of this broadcast. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. So many bad things are happening in the world right now. War in Ukraine, mass shootings in the United States, not to mention the threat to democracy posed by the Republican Party. And then there's climate change, the biggest and worst of all the bad things, and the one that seems most hopeless. But there's a new project with a new approach to the climate crisis, founded by Rebecca Solnit and Thelma Young-Lutun-Atambua, called Not Too Late. 
Rebecca Solnit, of course, is the author of more than two dozen books, most recently Orwell's Roses. We talked about it here. She's also a columnist for The Guardian. Rebecca, welcome back. Thank you. And Thelma is a digital storyteller and activist. She's currently the senior communications strategist at The Solutions Project. Before that, she's worked in various roles supporting the global climate movement, as well as other human rights projects around the world. Thelma, welcome. So you say the most harmful lie being spread about climate change today is not that it is fake. Okay, what is the most harmful lie being spread about climate change today, Thelma? One of the most hurtful lies that's coming out is that either, one, we can't do anything and that we're doomed, or two, we just have to take it slow and steady, bit by bit, incrementalism. And, and both of those things are really dangerous. And what Rebecca and I are really trying to tackle is people who feel stuck in despair, who can't see another world beyond apocalypse. And so just kind of give up, which I think unfortunately is a lot of people when actually, and this is the not too late title, you know, we do have time. There isn't much time left, but there is time to act. And, you know, this isn't a pass or fail test. As our friend, the scientist Jacqueline Gill says, every step of the way matters, every fight matters. And so much about what this project is about is reminding people that the future is not yet written. You know, we, we don't know what's going to happen and the future is what we created. So reminding people that, that they have power. So are you saying people should not feel frightened and, and depressed about what is happening to the world? Rebecca? You know, we totally understand and respect despair as an emotion. It's really important to not confuse it with an analysis. And you can feel scared and distressed and alarmed and all kinds of things. But the fact of the matter is, we are in the decade of decision. What we do in the 20s will determine the fate of the earth for centuries and millennia to come. And there's a lot we can do. We can speed the transition away from fossil fuels, loosen the death grip of the fossil fuel industry on our government and the world's energy supplies, build the renewables, protect the soil and the forests, and support all the incredible movements that have already done so much so far and um, have ambitions to do exactly what we need to do. There's a real tendency for people who aren't involved to say nobody's doing anything or think we're starting from scratch. But the climate movement is has grown in strength and inclusiveness and sophistication. There's a lot of absolutely brilliant stuff doing everything from targeting the climate footprint of cryptocurrency to protecting soil, to giving land back to indigenous people to manage, you know, so much else. So there is a huge movement. It needs everybody on board. And so in some sense, we're a recruiting project to say, there's lots to do, please come join us. But don't scientists say that another 1.5 degrees Celsius will mean game over, that that's the point at which catastrophic climate change becomes irreversible? Wasn't that what they said at the Paris Climate Summit a couple of years ago. And aren't we going to hit 1.5 degrees higher in the next few years? That, that is why some people say uh, it's, it's too late. 1.5 was also really championed by a lot of countries on the, on the front lines of climate change. 
the Climate Vulnerable Forum, and especially island nations in the Pacific. They really, really did the work, the hard diplomatic and civil society work to get folks to realize that 1.5 is crucial. So it is important to keep in mind that, yes, horrible, horrible things will happen at 1.5. Horrible things are happening now. There's a toll that climate change is happening on so many lives. You look at the recent heat wave in India, it is so extreme. Billions of lives were impacted. So what's also important to remember with 1.5 is, is again, it's not, you know, the end point. Even if we hit 1.5, you know, and it looks like most recently scientists say that there's a 50% chance that we'll hit it soon. But, you know, there's no room to give up. You know, we're not just going to give up and say, okay, that's it. We hit 1.5. Game over. Let me just go sit in my bunker. What we're saying is that every step of the way matters, especially for frontline communities whose entire nations are on the line. We, we, need, we do need to keep in mind the urgency, but also, you know, not give up hope and just keep on fighting every day. Just, I just want to add two quick things, one of which is I was in the room of the Climate Vulnerable Forum at Paris in 2015 when they forced the conference to shift from 2 degrees to 1.5 degrees. And these, are, of course, are scientific measurements. They're not, as our friend Jacqueline Gill, a climate scientist, says, a cliff we're going to fall off. And as Thelma's saying, there's, you know, there's steadily increasing climate chaos. We know there's no magic number at which suddenly everything goes crazy because lots of stuff is already haywire. We're already in trouble. So the important thing to remember is that 1.5 is a great let's not go there line, but it's not a cliff we fall off. Let's talk about the oil and gas companies. Of course, they have immense power. They've known for a long time that the end of the age of fossil fuel is coming, but they're using all the power they have to delay that ending as long as possible and to get us to burn as much carbon as possible in, in the meantime. Given this power they have, what makes you think we could succeed at slowing climate change uh, significantly? I mean, there's so many pieces to that picture, one of which is that renewables are now the cheapest form of energy in 91% of the world, I believe. The transition is already well underway, and Texas is now getting more energy from wind than from coal. It's cheaper to transition to renewables than to transition a coal plant to natural gas in the United States. I mean, the, the process is underway. The fossil fuel companies are currently rapaciously profiting and pretending it's something to do with Russia or Biden or something rather than their own greed. But their prices are so volatile, a lot of uh, investors have already withdrawn and they are vulnerable. They can be dismantled and they are not the inevitable superpowers of the world forever. And an important thing to always say about fossil fuel is it is poisonous every step of the way, literally from extraction to processing in refineries, to burning, uh, to what it does to the upper atmosphere and the long-term consequences of that. But it's also politically poison. I mean, Putin is in a fossil fuel oligarch, Chevron, Shell, BP, etc., are incredibly destructive forces in our politics. Saudi Arabia is a destructive force. Dismantling these things is not only entirely possible, but it's part of what Thelma and I really like to stress with this. 
The only solution to climate requires us to build a better world in many ways, and it is underway, and we have so far to go, but we've come so far, and we can dismantle them. One other thing, we're seeing this renewable energy revolution really on full steam. California is reaching, you know, on days, reaching 100% renewable energy. And we're also seeing that by countries, Denmark's hitting 100% renewable energy. You're seeing Costa Rica making huge, huge strides. So it is possible to reach 100%. It's totally possible. The research is there that shows that countries can do it. States can do it. It's already happening. What do you think about individual action? I can recycle. I can compost. Maybe I could buy a Prius. Well, you'd probably want to buy an electric car at this point in history, not a Prius. But it would actually be better to bicycle or take the bus, but we know you're in L.A. (laughs) So the personal virtue aspect has really been emphasized by the fossil fuel industry propaganda because it's a way both to make people think that they personally are the culprits in all this rather than that, you know, these huge forces, including the fossil fuel industry governments. And it's a way to tell us that we're consumers and we can just be virtuous consumers. But we're here to tell people that we're not just consumers, we're citizens. And as citizens, we can participate in system change, not just personal virtue. Personal virtue is basically a kind of withdrawal, like I won't fly, I won't eat this, I won't buy that. So personal virtue is kind of a no, but we're about the big yes. Yes, I will engage. Yes, I will work to the transition. Yes, I will be part of the incredible movements out there now. All those things are good, except when they're the only things people think they can do or all they're obliged to do. Almost all of us have the power to participate in some kind of collective action that and system change. And I think for those of us who aren't overwhelmed, you know, we're not prisoners, we're not single mothers, um, you know, we're not homeless, etc. We have that obligation to face the greatest crisis that our species has faced. If we prevail, how much do you think we can reduce our use of uh, fossil fuels, say by 2030 or by 2050? The solutions are, are there. And that's something that scientists have said again and again. We actually have so much of the technology that we need. We know how to do this. We know how to electrify. We know how to get things going. So much of what is missing is the political will, especially in the U.S. There's a lot of other countries moving much faster. And so if we can build the political will, there's so much that can be done. You know, we don't have to wait for the technology. The technology is there. So it's more about building the people power, pushing the politicians and getting things done because it's ready. So let's just go. So I've heard talk about net zero carbon emissions by 2050. This isn't the kids in the Sunrise Movement who who have told us we can do this. It's the International Energy Agency, which is a much more august and cautious organization. I would say that the only reason they're saying that is that the climate movement, including the policy analysts and visionaries, badgered and bulldozed and pressured them to wake up and see the danger and shift their focus from conventional energy to renewables, which I guess is the new conventional energy. But net zero is a tricky phrase because it there's a fantasy that we're going to do lots of magical carbon sequestration, which means we can continue burning fossil fuel. And that technology doesn't exist, or it exists in tiny, inadequate ways that can take shave a tiny 
fraction of a percent off the carbon emissions. Whereas renewables are robust. The price keeps dropping. The design keeps getting better. And the engineering breakthroughs around it are so exciting. And so, yeah, we can get to zero by 2050. We can have it by 2030, but we need to do it by actually cutting carbon emissions as well as methane emissions and related emissions, not by the magical thinking people like Bill Gates love because they love big technology and don't like social change. The idea that somehow this magical technology that doesn't exist will come out and save us. We have magical technology, except it's not magical. It's called solar and wind and battery <laughs> yes. storage and efficiency and good design. One of the best things about joining activist groups is discovering that we have some wonderful allies out there. Yes, some activists are doctrinaire and domineering, but lots of activists are inspiring and engaging and hopeful, and some are even fun. I, I think you know what I mean. Thelma's one of the most fun people I know, <laughs> and I'm super excited to be partnering with her since you know we met and realized we shared a common vision and that we could do this thing together. And it took us a while to figure out what it is, but we're doing it. But yeah, I think movements are where you meet the best people. And yeah, there are people who drag on at the meeting and stuff, but like the climate movement is global, it's indigenous, it's feminist, it's people of color and racial justice, it's passionate 11 year olds around, you know, and 12 year olds and 13 year olds around the world. And it's visionaries, it's people who truly have a roadmap to a better world. And it's like, it's the best place to hang out. Yeah, and, and something that Rebecca and I love to talk about it, and she touched on this earlier, is that actually through fighting the climate crisis, we can actually create a better world. So people joining the climate fight is, again, people from all walks of life. And through that process, they'll get to know their neighbors, they'll build stronger communities, communities with probably better air quality and more community gardens and you know a healthier place to live. So if you can find a local group near you, we encourage people to get involved. If you can't find a local group, start one or join a national group. But if you're ever feeling down and in despair, the best thing to do is find other people and just take action and get involved. In conclusion, your, your starting point here is we don't know what will happen. And therefore, therefore what? The future is what we make in the present by what we do. It's not like we don't have a clue. There are definitely some parameters with climate change, but there's a huge spectrum from the best case scenario to the worst case scenario. And what we do or don't do really, you know, drives us towards one of those destinations. And of course they continue to evolve. There are surprises along the way. So it's not, I don't want it to sound like we don't know what we're doing, but we do know that the future doesn't yet exist. We often find that despondent people and just the kind of middle-class peasant fatalism of Americans <laughs> suggest that the future already exists and some people are really smart about it. And those are the people telling you it sucks and game over, but they're wrong. Thelma, one last thing, explain to us about your name. Oh, my last name, Lutonatumbua. My husband is Fijian. He was actually um, helped found the Pacific Climate Warriors. And one of their anthems is, we're not drowning, we're fighting. So that's something that's always really inspired me. And my hope is coming from the Pacific is, you know, they are really on the front lines. They have so much at risk, but they are not giving up. They're not drowning, they're fighting. 
Rebecca and Thelma have organized Not Too Late. It's a project to invite newcomers to the climate movement and guide people from despair to possibilities. You can find them online at nottoolateclimate.com. You can follow them on Facebook at Not Too Late Climate, on Twitter at Not Too Late underscore hope. Thank you, Thelma. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you, Rebecca. Always a pleasure, John. Thank you. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time for another episode of the Children's Hour. Stories about Ivanka, Don Jr., and little Eric. Last week, their mother died, Ivana Trump. She was 73. She fell down the stairs at her home off Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. She'd been born in Czechoslovakia. She was a young ski champion and then a model. She married Donald Sr. in 1977, worked beside him on his hotel projects, and divorced him after 15 years of marriage in 1992 when he had an affair with Marla Maples, who he then married. People Magazine this week said Ivana had, quote, a hustler mentality and an unapologetic way of life. We spoke with Amy Willens about Ivana in 2017 when Ivana published her memoir, Raising Trump. Amy, of course, is best known for her work on Haiti, especially the award-winning book, Farewell, Fred Voodoo. She was also Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's also written for The New York Times and The Washington Post, and she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She teaches literary journalism at UC Irvine, and she's a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. In our conversation in 2017, I asked Amy what Ivana's memoir, Raising Trump, was like. First of all, I don't like to push a Trump book, but this is a highly pleasurable read. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, it's like instead of you're reading a real memoir, it's like you're reading a memoir of a character who's been invented by someone. Now, that may be actually how Ivana views herself, like an invented persona who came out of nowhere to become this very rich lady. But it reads a little bit like you're taking one character out of a 19th century novel, and that character is the character of the Arivist in society who pushes her way. Usually it's a woman trying to make her fortune because there was no other way to make a fortune for a woman in those days, push her way into the circles of the elite and live that incredible life. I had just finished reading The House of Mirth by Edith Wharton, <laughs> and I was strongly reminded in the way that Ivana describes the New York society she entered into of the world Lily Bart enters into in that book. Well, I know this. there's a lot about uh, her kids in this book. She is the mother of Don Jr., Ivanka, and little Eric, as we call him. Does she have tips for child raising? Is it that kind of a book? It is that kind of a book, and I am so glad I didn't read it before I raised my <laughs> own children, or I would have felt sorely minimalized by it, minimized. So I'll tell you some of her tips on child rearing. First of all, don't breastfeed. She didn't do this because it didn't mesh with her work schedule. And she 
is very horrified that Ivanka is breastfeeding her children. She doesn't understand why anyone would do that when formula works so well. What What was her work schedule? She was running a, the Trump Tower decoration. She was she made the Grand Hyatt and branded it for Trump. Wow! He gave her a lot of jobs. Okay. Of course, it helps too. Also, when you're rearing your children, to marry someone who owns a skyscraper that you both live in, so that when you break up, he can still live in the building in his own <laughs> duplex or triplex. Another thing is, if you're going to work and have children, it helps in rearing them to have two Irish nannies who live in. Also have parents who agree with you and agree to live in, and so that you never really have to raise your kids. Oh, she also has a houseman. John, what's a houseman? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> His name is David. He's very loyal. What? Uh... Well, very loyal in, in Trump land means has never sold a story about you to the press. Yeah. <laughs> Glad to hear. And uh, who is her her favorite of the of of her kids? Of course, ours is Ivanka. Ours is Ivanka. Well, I think hers is Donald Jr., uh, the firstborn, the cute boy, um, the capable one. She worries a lot about little Eric. He's really presented as little Eric in the book. He's always too young to understand. He's always off somewhere. All of her emotions are seen either through herself or through Donald Jr. Ivanka is just perfect. Mm. And I think that Ivanka is presented as perfect because her mother is grooming her for the presidency in 15 Wait. years. Exactly 15 years, my friends. 15 years from now. today? From now? <laughs> 15 years from now. She thinks Ivanka could be president 15 years from now. That's what she says. This would be, I guess, our first woman president? And the first Jew. Oh, and the first Jewish president, a twofer. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she was a little irritated when Ivanka dyed her hair blue. That wasn't recently, though. No, and you know what was so great about it? Uh, Ivanka dyed her hair blue, and her mother said, no, this cannot stand. Her mother goes out and buys some uh, hair dye and puts it in Ivanka's hair, making it three shades lighter than it originally was, and Ivanka never goes back to her dark <laughs> blonde hair. Now, I, I heard that uh, when Ivana was promoting this book, I think it was on the Today Show, she said that Donald senior, uh, her husband, did not want to name his firstborn son Don Jr. Is, is this a true story? And what was the reason? So they're in the hospital room, they're cuddling the little newborn. And Donald says to Ivana, what should we name him? And she goes immediately, Donald Jr. And he says, no. And she goes, of course, we're going to name him that. Why not? What if he's a loser? What if he's a loser? Good this, way to greet your newborn boy. <laughs> this kid is no, not <laughs> one day old. So what must it be like for Don Jr. today to know that his father, on the hour that he was born, said, what if he's a loser? I don't know. To me, it reminds me of Donald Sr. talking also. I think it was about Tiffany and Marla Maple's body and how Tiffany, who was like one year old at the time, would probably have the same attributes of body. Donald was more specific mm. about those attributes. I, he sees children only as their future, fully mature selves, I think. One of the things I wondered about Ivana's book is, you know, she, if she was still married to Donald, she would be the first lady. Has, has this occurred to her? 
She, it has occurred to her um, when she was interviewed recently on the book tour, she did sort of call herself the first lady. And she, she knows that Melania exists, of course, but she justified her calling herself the first lady. Well, I'm the first. I was the first of the first. <laughs> she was the, the first. The ladies of the Trump. So okay. she, in essence, and she's the mother of the children who are all uh, infesting the White House. And so she feels her bragging rights as first lady. First, first-ish. 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 Right. And um, is there any dirt on Donald Trump in this book? You know, there's the scene at the place in Aspen at Bonnie's restaurant where they're all having a very nice family meal and Marla Maples comes up to the table and says, do you love your husband? She says to Ivana, because I love your husband. And that's when the marriage comes to a grinding halt with this announcement by Marla Maples. So there is some of that, but there's no like inside dirt that you want to know. Like, did they fight? Did she scream at him? You just don't know. It just the marriage comes to an end. And then the uh, story comes out in the tabloids, the, the best sex I ever had, Marla Maple says, leading one to wonder about her previous experience. But okay, <laughs> so be it. And, uh, and then Ivana has to flee with the children to Mar-a-Lago uh, because she doesn't want them to to have to deal with that. So, you know, it's and that kind of stuff, but, but nothing really gritty about him. Don Jr. was was like a teenager when the Best Sex I Ever Had headline appears uh, in, the, in the New York Post. And I believe he was still living in New York City at that time. So uh, not too nice to Don Jr. Right. And Don Jr. was the one who was so angry with him and refused to speak to him for a year. And is there anything about that kind of thing or that thing in well, the book? There is a mention of that thing, but there's also the moment where, and I find this surreal. So they're all living in the same building, Trump Tower, and they're divorced or getting divorced. Anyway, Donald Sr.'s bodyguard security guy comes up to the apartment, the triplex as she always calls it, and says his father wants to see Don Jr. This is when Don Jr. is not speaking to him. But Ivana says, okay, take him. So they take Don Jr. down. And then Donald calls up Ivana and he says, I'm keeping Don Jr. Wow. Even though she has sole custody. Wow. And she says to him, she says, okay, keep him. That'll make it easier for me. I'll only have two here. And like five minutes later, he sends Don Jr. back up. It was just to mess with her mind. She says yeah. it had, she knew he was never going to keep a kid. So that's like perhaps the most dirty dirt you get on Donald. Raising Trump, you might get the impression this is kind of a traditional kind of self-help book about how to actualize your potential and, and be a better person in the world. Is, is that the kind of book it is? I think it's a really, really interesting book, not because it itself is so interesting, but because it's not uh, spiritual, it's not really a self-help book, although there are the wonderful tips on raising children. But it's more of uh, an aspirational book, like, look at me, let me show off in front of you, uh, let me tell you about all the things I have that you don't have. I mean, the reading public, what they don't have these things that she has. When she goes to look for a house in Connecticut, you know, admittedly a second or third house she's looking for, she doesn't drive around the way one would normally with a realtor and go from house to house. They take a helicopter <laughs> so that she can see the extent of the houses she's looking at. And she says something like, 
I picked the one with 17 bedrooms close to the yacht club mm. uh, with a underground bowling alley and three large kitchens. I'm not kidding. <laughs> From a helicopter. It, but I think it says something about the people who love Trump, mm. this book. I think she's targeting that same audience, obviously, because normally I wouldn't buy this book, right? I'm not a Trump supporter and I wouldn't buy it. But I think the people who will buy it just, they love the lifestyle. It's it's a television, reality television, sort of rich housewives of Manhattan and Greenwich book and you get to see all of the fun she has and all of the places where she lives. This has been The Children's Hour with Amy Willens, stories about Don Jr., Ivanka, and little Eric, especially as told by their mother, Ivana, in her book, Raising Trump. Amy, thanks so much for coming in. Always great to have you on the show. Thank you, John. We spoke with Amy about Ivana Trump in December 2017. Ivana died last week. She was 73. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.